Okay, today we're in Nehemiah chapter 6, starting in verse 16. Let's uh, begin by opening with prayer. Father God, we thank you so much for this book that uh, has taught us so many things. We thank you that we can see about Nehemiah's uh, example of good leadership, about the way that you have always been there to support your people and uh, bring them to the land, give them the protection they need, uh, help them to deal with their enemies, all those things that you uh, have always been faithful. And we just pray that that'll be something that we'll, we'll remember and think about in our own lives. We pray that you'll be with us now as we study today and open your word up, uh, open our hearts to your word and give us insight and, and understand how uh, we can know you better through this. We just pray your blessings on our time now in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, for our reading this morning, we're going to start in chapter 6, verse 15, and we're going to go through 7, verse 4. So there's a break there. 6.15 through 7.4. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month, Elul, in 52 days. When all the enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our, our God. Also in those days, many letters went from the nobles of Juba to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, since he was a son-in-law of Shechaniah, son of Erech, and his son Jehonahan had married the daughter of Meshulam, son of Erechiah. Also they spoke of his good deeds in my presence, and reported my words to him, and Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. After the wall had been rebuilt, and I had set the doors in place, the gatekeepers, the musicians, and the Levites were appointed. And I gave my brother Hanani, and I am the governor of the castle charge over Jerusalem. But he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than me. And I said to them, Do not let the gates of Jerusalem be open until the sun is up, and when they are standing guard, let them shut and bolt the gates doors. Also appoint guards from the inhabitants of Jerusalem, each at his post and each in front of his own house. Now the city was large and spacious, but there were few people in it, and the houses had not yet been rebuilt. Okay, so last week uh, we uh, were looking at chapter 6, starting in verse 10. If you remember, the uh, walls had been completed, but the doors had not been hung in the gates at this point. And so the enemies of the Jews were uh, trying one last desperate measures to try to prevent that. They had, uh, instead of attacking the builders, they had switched their focus to attacking Nehemiah to try to remove him from leadership. Uh, and in verse 10, we saw the third of three different attempts to really uh, destroy his leadership. They had hired Shemaiah uh, to come to Nehemiah with a false prophecy that there were men coming to kill him and they were, going to coming to, they were coming at night and that he needed to flee with Shemaiah to the temple and go inside and close the doors where it would be safe. And this would cause two problems for the Jews. First, it would demoralize them because their leader was fleeing. When your leader turns and runs, you're not going to stand and fight. And Nehemiah knew that. The other point was that 
only priests were allowed inside the temple. And he was telling Nehemiah to go inside the temple, which was a violation of the Mosaic law, and then his enemies would have a definite charge to bring up against him. So Nehemiah refused, and um, the work continued, and we saw in verse 15 that they got the doors hung, everything was completed, and it took them 52 days to do the job. That's an amazing amount of work in a short period of time. And they finished uh, somewhat like late September, early October. So Nehemiah had been in Susa before, you know, in the presence of Artaxerxes as a cupbearer back in March of that year. (coughs) So from March of that year, he had traveled from Susa all the way to Jerusalem, gotten the walls rebuilt. That's an awful lot of work to pack into six months. But he did it. So So now today, starting verse 16, we'll see... How did the, his enemies respond to the fact that they had completed the walls and got the doors hung? Well, 16 says, It came about when all our enemies heard of it and all the nations surrounding us saw it, they lost their confidence. For they recognized that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. So they looked at what had been done and they said, This is not possible for a a bunch of untrained construction workers to build two and a half miles of wall in 52 days. And they realized God must have been helping them. Now the commentaries often uh, reference Josephus and his writings. Josephus said it took two and a half years to build a wall. And there's a lot of people today who believe that Josephus was right. It really, 52 days is some kind of a problem in the script, you know, either a copying error or something, but it probably took two and a half years because it seems impossible. And it was impossible. And that's why the enemies recognized that, you know, God can accomplish the impossible. And. If it had been two and a half years, they would have been so astonished. They would not have been astonished, <laughs> right. But they were astonished. You know, and that kind of is the internal proof that this verse is accurate. Uh, 52 days they did this work. You know, God must have been helping them. And so the reaction here is uh, fear and discouragement. Uh, New American Standard says they lost their confidence. Now, some translations include the word fear. And I'm not absolutely positive why I, I, I looked uh, my software has a Hebrew interlinear and the word for fear is not in it so um, I mean it's appropriate it fits but um, I was looking for that word and didn't find it so this kind of a response to seeing God working on behalf of the Jews is not unusual let's turn back to Exodus chapter 14 This example occurs in the middle of the Red Sea. Exodus chapter 14. And would someone like to read verses 24 and 25 for us? And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel. 
for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Okay. The, the Egyptian army panicked and f- fled. They tried to get out. They were crossing the Red Sea after the Jews at this time. And they recognized this, this is God's work. You know, we're in trouble here. You know, they panicked and they fled. And uh, the next verse, you know, God tells Moses to spread his hands over the water, and the waters return and destroys the Egyptian army. So they had reason to panic. Let's turn to Joshua chapter 5. Now this they say, well, we're going to drown with only six inches of water. Right. So America was they drowned six inches of water. True. That would be a miracle. Oh, my. Okay. Uh, Joshua chapter 5. Would someone like to read verse 1 for us? Now it came about when all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard how the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan before the sons of Israel until they had crossed, that their hearts melted, and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the sons of Israel. Okay, so our, our verses, uh, Jews lost their confidence here, and Joshua says their hearts melted. You know, the, the whole nation of the Jews had, they were on the east side of the Jordan River. It was in flood stage. So everybody on the west was saying, oh, they're over there. They're, they're not going to make it. How, how are they going to get across the Jordan? The river's in flood. There's no way they're going to get across. God dried up the river. They came across. And it's like, you know, we're doomed. God is helping the Jews. And so we see that over and over again. Uh, throughout the history of Israel and this is just another case here in Nehemiah these walls just I mean they they went up as fast as Jericho's walls came down almost Um, God must have been helping them so um, you know if if God's protecting Jerusalem then then what can their enemies do can they fight the Jews can they overcome them uh, no it's, it's not possible let's look at one of my favorite examples let's look at 2nd Chronicles chapter 32 32 yes this is during the time of King Hezekiah and Assyria is attacking Jerusalem Second Chronicles 32, would someone like to read verses 20 through 23? Then Hezekiah the king and Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, prayed because of this and cried to heaven. And the Lord sent an angel who cut up all the mighty waters, warriors, and commanders and officers in the camp of the king of Assyria. So he returned with shame to his face to his own land. And when he came into the house of his God, some of his own sons struck him down there with the sword. Is it 22? Through 23, please. So the Lord saved Hezekiah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib, king of Assyria, and from the hand of all his enemies, and he provided for them on every side. And many brought gifts to the Lord to Jerusalem, and precious things to Hezekiah, king of Judah, so that he was exalted in the sight of all nations from that time onward. Okay, so 
the Syrian army, they had captured the northern kingdom of Israel, they had destroyed Samaria, and now they were surrounding Jerusalem, and um, Hezekiah uh, cried out to the Lord, and the Lord answered and destroyed the army. Does anybody remember how many men God destroyed that night? It doesn't tell us here in Second Chronicles. Uh, the parallel passage is in Second Kings. What's your guess, Joe? 120,000 is a guess. 400,000. 400,000. 185,000 died in one night. And that's where it says they got up the next morning and behold, they were all dead men out there. <laughs> Everybody was dead. I know that feeling. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> with their chickens, right. <laughs> Um, but looking at our, our passage here in Second Chronicles, after this had happened, how did all the surrounding nations then treat King Hezekiah? Did they try attacking him? No, they brought him gifts. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they wanted to be on Hezekiah's good side. They wanted to make friends with Hezekiah because they knew who his God was. I have a note in my Bible that's cautioned to verse 25 and 26 because Hezekiah's heart was proud. And then he, he goes on and humbles the pride of his heart. Yes. Hezekiah did have some problems after that. Let's look at one New Testament example of this principle. Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, someone like these verses 38 and 39 for us. This is uh, Gamaliel standing before the council and giving them advice about how to deal with this new religion. 38 and 39. 38 and 39 in Acts chapter 5. In the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, or else you may even be found fighting against God. Okay. If you're going to pick a fight, don't pick a fight with God, because you're going to lose. Um, and so that's his advice to the Jewish council. Don't, don't try to fight this new church uh, Christian movement that's coming up with their Messiah. He says, you know, We've had movements like this rise and fall. Um, it'll fall on its, it'll collapse if it's not of God. If it is of God, don't fight it. You'll be fighting against God. Okay, so this point in back in Nehemiah chapter six, this kind of ends the whole building construction phase of the historical narrative. They've got the walls completed, the doors are hung. Um, their enemies have backed off because they recognize that there's nothing they can do now. And so now we're going to get into um, more of a background explanation and information. And Nehemiah as governor is starting to uh, rebuild their society and, and get his administration set up here. Uh, but first he has to talk about some of the problems he's facing here in verses 17 and 18. 
It says, also in those days many letters went from the nobles of Judah to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Era, and his son Johanan had married the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah. So he's talking about some of the ties here between these influential Jewish families or, or priestly families and the enemies of Jerusalem. Tobiah being one of the leaders of that of the opposition. Um, and the first thing he says, there's a lot of correspondence going on between them. So you've got these powerful families in Jerusalem sending letters back and forth to his opposition. Um, you know, they were probably complaining about this new governor and then trying to figure out, well, how do we deal with this guy? Because he had come in and he had disrupted you know, whatever their... Um, reason you know, for not wanting walls? Pardon? Whatever the reason for not wanting walls? Right, reasons for not wanting walls, yeah. You know, everything was, as far as they were concerned, everything was going well. You know, we had commerce, we had, inter, you know, interaction with these other nations, everything was going good, and now this Nehemiah comes along and disrupts it. And so they're trying to figure out what to do with them. And, you know, the commentaries... Uh, suggest that Nehemiah was a separatist. He was trying to separate the, the Jews from all the other nations. And they didn't want that. Um, it would harm their trade relations. They would hard to harm their political relations with their neighbors. So he talks about in verse 18 how Tobiah was related to them. Um, he himself was married to the daughter of Shechaniah, the son of Erah. If we look in chapter 7, verse 10, this, goes, this is an old list of the people who returned to Jerusalem way back in 536, or, um, when the Jews first returned. You've got the sons of Erah, 652. So he was a descendant of you know, a Jewish family, and Tobiah had married his daughter, and then Tobiah's son, Jehohanan, had married the daughter of Meshulam, son of Berechiah. Um, we don't have to look at it, but there's back in chapter 3 when we were looking at this family repaired this section of wall and these people repaired that section of wall. Meshulam is named in two different places in that chapter. So he was a Jew who was busy helping to rebuild the wall. Um, well, his son had married um, Tobiah's son, so they were co-father-in-laws. So you've got these relationships between of, um, uh, Tobiah and all these other people who lived in Jerusalem who were part of these powerful families. Um, let's look at Nehemiah chapter 13 and verse 4. I think we've looked at this before, but... Someone would like to read that for us. Now, prior to this, Eliashib, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, being related to Tobiah. Okay. So there's Eliashib. He's the high priest. He's related to Tobiah also. 
So Tobiah's got all these inroads into not just Jewish society, but into the upper levels of Jewish society. Um, the other thing that's noted is that Tobiah and Jehohanan are both Jewish names. But Nehemiah calls him Tobiah the Ammonite. So what's the deal here? So, you know, you, you go back and you, you look at the commentaries and what the speculation is, is that he was from the northern kingdom. Um, and when the Assyrians had destroyed Samaria, many of the Jews fled and they fled to Ammon. And that he was um, a descendant of some of those who had fled to Ammon. So he was of Jewish blood but he had been living in Ammon. His family had been living in Ammon for decades, and so he was called an Ammonite. And then, in, as we get on further in chapter 7, we'll see the, the genealogies. Well, he had not been able to prove that he was a registered Jew. We see something like that in our modern times in uh, uh, some of the... Uh, tribal councils with the Indian reservations where they've got a membership role. And in some places where they've got a very lucrative business with a casino or something, if your name's on the list, you get a monthly paycheck. And so everybody wants their name on the list, so they're very protective of whose name goes on. So they try to figure out, are you really a part of our tribe or not? And so that's kind of what happened here. Uh, you know, Israel was, in effect, a tribe. And they said, are, are, you know, can you show, can you demonstrate that you're part of our tribe? And Tobiah could not. Um, what it seems like was that, you know, the leaders in Jerusalem said, well, he's, he's obviously of Jewish blood, so it's okay for us to intermarry, even though he cannot prove that he's Jewish. So it was one of these, well, close enough things, and so they allowed it. And that's kind of what I'm, I'm guessing is, is why he was so interrelated with these people. Um, but it, it goes on to say that, you know, they were bound to him by oath. And the, the commentaries all point out that the marriage oath, this is not referred, referred to the marriage oath. So it's not because of the marriages that was the binding oath. But that meant these, all these people were their in-laws. They were the people he did business with. And so in the course of doing business, they would have contracts, you know, commercial contracts, political contracts, and so they had oaths as a result of that. And so they were bound together in, in both politics and in business. And so there was a lot of correspondence going on between Tobiah and these, these leading families. And our next verse tells, tells us some of what was contained in that, those commentaries in verse 19. <clears throat> it says, Moreover, they were speaking about his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. Then Tobiah sent letters to frighten me. So first the, the Jewish families were trying to tell Nehemiah what a good guy Tobiah was. And they probably had good relationship with him. You know, he was a friend, part of their extended families, a business associate. They had no problem with Tobiah. 
and you know maybe he was a very nice, friendly guy, and they they enjoyed doing business with him, and there were, and he was accepted into their society, and they were trying to um, get Nehemiah to accept him as well, and probably in their eyes they looked at Nehemiah as being some kind of a bigot. You know, why won't you like this guy? What's wrong with him? You know, we find him acceptable. Why can't you? You know, he's, you know. Maybe he gave money to buy something for the temple or, you know, look, he donated the pew. You know? <laughs> so, um, you know, they're, they're trying to say good things about Tobiah to Nehemiah. But then on, in, on the other hand, they would tell t- um, Tobiah everything that Nehemiah was doing and was saying. So, you know, previously during the construction, you know, they had accurate reports on progress of the construction because they were riding back and forth. So Tobiah knew where they were. They probably also let Tobiah know how Nehemiah responded when they were trying to tell him what a wonderful person Tobiah was. And Nehemiah keeps rebuffing this. And then the last thing we see is Tobiah starts sending letters to frighten Nehemiah. Um, Now this seems to be kind of counterproductive to what the Jewish leaders were doing because they were trying to get Tobiah to accept or I get Nehemiah to accept Tobiah. <coughs> and these frightening letters from Tobiah wouldn't help that. But I think if you look at it more sequentially, you'll see that the the, the leaders of, in Jerusalem, the, the nobles, were tr- would come to Nehemiah and say, Tobiah's a wonderful guy. Nehemiah would say, no, he's not. I want nothing to do with them. They would report that to Tobiah, and Tobiah said, well, obviously I'm, he's not going to do dealing with me, so I'm going to go back to trying to frighten him, which is what we saw earlier um, in some of these plots against him. So that kind of makes sense if you look at it that way. Um, one of the things from the last presidential administration, you know, when Trump was, he'd talk about the swamp, and that referred to all these people in the government who did not like his policies and were working against him. So this is Nehemiah's swamp. These are all the people in influential places in the in a local government. They did not like what Nehemiah was doing, and they would try to work against him. So this was a struggle for his leadership. Okay, so we have time to get started on chapter 7. Um, so the first four verses of chapter 7 uh, kind of describe some administrative duties that Nehemiah had to accomplish to really ensure the safety and the stability of life in Jerusalem after the walls have been completed. Looking at verse 1, now it came about when the walls were rebuilt and I had set the doors and the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites were appointed. Okay, so we know the doors are in place, the walls are completed, 100% secure as far as the structure. Um, But this is something new for Jerusalem. They never had gates before. They didn't have anybody to guard the gates. So they had to set up some kind of protocol to provide guards 
for the gates and when they're to be opened. You know, who opens the gates, who closes the gates, when do you open, things like that. Uh, so Nehemiah had to set up some protocol for that. Now it also says that the singers and the Levites had been appointed. And it's kind of unclear how this fits in. And some of the scholars say that this might have been a line that was accidentally copied from somewhere else in the book because it just seems out of place. Um, but either as part of him establishing uh, more of a routine procedure at the temple for worship or possibly that with this need for guards that they had conscripted these singers and Levites to help guard the gates. So those are two possibilities there. Um, again, it's a little unclear why it mentions them. Going on to verse 2, he says, That I put Hanani, my brother, and Hananiah, the commander of the fortress, in charge of Jerusalem, for he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. So we first have Hanani, who is Nehemiah's brother. And remember, he was first mentioned way back at the beginning of the book. Let's turn to chapter 1. Someone likely verses 1 and 2. The words of Nehemiah, son of Kekeliah, in the month of Keslev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned him about the Jewish remnant and that had survived the exiles and also about Jerusalem. Okay, so Hanani had come to Susa, the capital of um, Persia. And if you remember, that was like traveling from here to L.A., so it's a long trip. And he probably was there on some kind of official business, so it, there's a good chance he was already in a leadership position in Jerusalem. Um, and so he's, he's here now mentioned, uh, and it says that Nehemiah appoints him over Jerusalem. So Nehemiah now is no longer just a construction manager. He has to have some kind of authority here from King Artaxerxes to be able to appoint a governor, or not a governor, but a mayor, essentially, or the leader of the city manager, I guess. So he appoints his brother, Hanani, uh, to be leader uh, over the city. But then second, we have Hananiah. It says he's a commander of the fortress, and this fortress is mentioned back in chapter 2. <clears throat> Let's turn back to chapter 2 and verse 8. Someone would like to read that for us. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Okay, so this really, he's... Nehemiah is still in Susa. He wants a letter to get timber, but it mentions the, the fortress which is by the temple. So there is a fortress there. It's near the temple. That's um, Essentially, it was to guard the temple compound. Um, they had uh, a wall around the temple, and I think you know, they would guard it from 
Gentiles getting in or unclean people, you know, they would keep people out, and so they had to have a guard there. <coughs> and these may or may not have been Levites. Uh, in some cases, they were Levites who were responsible for this. Um, and I think in the New Testament, there's when Paul causes the riot in Jerusalem, remember they said that he, they claimed he brought a Gentile inside past one of these walls where the Gentiles were not supposed to be, and so they rioted, and the Romans came out of the fortress that was next to the temple to calm the riot. So it's a little bit similar. So we have, a, we have this fortress, and Hananiah was the commander of this guard, <clears throat> so originally his responsibility was to guard the temple compound. Now, however, his authority has expanded. He's got a whole city to guard. Instead of just the temple mount, he's now guarding the whole city. Um, and Nehemiah goes on to say about Hananiah that he was a faithful man. He was faithful to God. He feared God. So he was someone that he could trust to do what was right in God's eyes. You know, we were just talking about Nehemiah's swamp. Well, Hananiah was not one of the members of that opposition group. This was someone who, who he could trust. Uh, and it, he says that uh, Nehemiah feared God more than many. Who do you suppose the many refers to? The, yeah, the opposition. Yeah, the, the swamp. <laughs> I think it, I think he's kind of taking a a, a a shot here at the at the opposition. You know, that they did not fear God. They were in it for the money and the power and the prestige. <coughs> Hananiah was there to serve God. <coughs> so we have these two men appointed. Hananiah was was probably responsible for the security of the city, the guard. Uh, Hanane was the administrator over the city in that case. Now one of the things the commentators point out is that there already were some administrators in the city. So let's turn back to chapter 3. <clears throat> this is again, who built what piece of wall? Someone like to read verse 9 for us. Okay, so there's Rephiah. He's official or ruler of half the district of Jerusalem. And then also, would someone read verse 12 for us? Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halohesh, the official of half the district of Jerusalem, made repairs. He and his daughter. Okay, there's the other half of Jerusalem. So we've got two officials here. So, you know, we're not told exactly how they interrelated with Hanani, but um, again, the commentaries say either they were um, under Hanani's authority, you know, uh, Hanani was over the entire city and they had their two districts, or that their jobs really didn't overlap. They were responsible for different things. But um, anyways, there's, there's a form of administration set up over the city. Um, 
And going on to verse 3, we have some specific instructions as far as the gates. He says, Then I said to them, Do not let the gates to Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are standing guard, let them shut and bolt the doors. Also appoint guards from the inhabitants of Jerusalem, each at his own post, each in front of his own house. <coughs> so, <clears throat> this is... <laughs> Here's Nehemiah giving Hananiah specific instructions about when do you open the gates, when do you close the gates. But as we've hit before in places, the Hebrew is a little unclear. <laughs> now, this was written over 2,600 years ago, so it, you know, not all of these words are well known what they mean. Um, most translations say basically to wait until later in the morning to open the gates. You don't open them at sunrise. Wait until a little later in the day. The sun's up. It's gotten warm. Um, then open the gates. And then at the end of the day, while the guards are still on duty, have them shut and bolt the gates at the end of their shift. The guards don't go off duty and then leave the doors and for someone else to close. You know, Make sure it's closed and locked. So, so that makes good sense. Um, and that's probably what this means. One of the commentaries had an interesting suggestion. Um, and it says, uh, it says, do not, basically a little bit of a different translation, do not let the gates of Jerusalem be opened while the sun is hot. And he's thinking, okay, middle of the day, the, everyone's taking a siesta, shut the gates while everybody's taking a nap. <laughs> So you can nap in, nap in peace and safety. But uh, I thought that was interesting, but not a lot of support for it. Um, also, at the end of the verse, Nehemiah is saying, you need to appoint more guards from the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So you've got expanded role. You need more people to guard all these gates. You know, Get some of the inhabitants from, from Jerusalem out to help. Um, and also have some of them in front of his own house. So this is kind of like a neighborhood watch situation. So Nehemiah is obviously still concerned about the danger from surrounding uh, enemies, the surrounding nations. And finally, let's go, go on to verse 4. It says, Now the city was large and spacious, but the people in it were few, and the houses were not built. So the city had been destroyed, the walls had been destroyed, so there was no point in living in Jerusalem compared to living in a village because it wasn't any safer. It, had, it did not have defensive walls. And so people had not moved back into Jerusalem. They had stayed out in the country where they had their land. Um, there weren't that many people there. Probably most of them were connected to the temple and temple worship where they had to be nearby. Um, the city had been destroyed, and so, you know, this large is spacious, but not many people living there. Let's turn to chapter 11, and someone like to read verse 1 for us. Jerusalem, but the rest of the people cast lots to bring 
one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine-tenths remained in the other cities. So here's a plan to repopulate the city. You've got these people in all the surrounding villages, and they drew lots. One out of ten would move into Jerusalem. It says the leaders were there, but the general population was still out, you know, in the farmland. Um, and this kind of, I think, also might explain in chapter 3, when we were talking about who built what section of wall, over and over again we had the inhabitants of a certain city came and built the wall, or the inhabitants of this village. That's because there wasn't anybody in Jerusalem. So all the people were living outside Jerusalem, and they would come in uh, to help build the wall because there weren't that many people living there in Jerusalem. So. Okay. Um, I'm just going to make a, a comment here. One of the things that's been frustrating is kind of figuring out the, um, the timeline of events here. We mentioned when Nehemiah first left, you know, King Artaxerxes said, well, how long are you going to be gone? Give us an estimate. And, it, and from reading that in chapter 2, it sounds like, well, I'm just going to be gone for a few months. And now we know he's been there, a governor there for 12 years. We've read that. So what happened? How did that transpire? Did he, you know, did, did he actually ask for an initial time period of 12 years? It doesn't sound like that in chapter 2. So maybe he got to Jerusalem, he sent communications back and forth to Artaxerxes, and Artaxerxes says, I'll, you know, I'm going to make you governor, I'm going to give you a 12-year term to stay there and govern. The other Why thing is... 12 years, they got to build 50 days. Yeah. <laughs> Well, he was under a timeline. So, you know, and so that's the speculation is that he got the walls finished. He went back to Susa. And then Artaxerxes said, okay, I'm going to send you back as governor for 12 years. And he came back, so he made a trip to Susa and back, which would have happened somewhere here in our context. But he doesn't say anything about making a trip back to Susa. Uh, we get to chapter 13, and he specifically says, I wasn't in Jerusalem at that time, you know. That's later after the so this 52 days is after he is shortly after he got there. It started right after, yeah, he got there, and I think on the third day he toured the wall. Yeah, he started as soon as he got there. Verse um, 2 in chapter 7, you know, I went over and I said, Joe, you know, how soon is he leaving? Yes. <laughs> because that to me has sort of a tone of, you know, what's the succession plan? Right, right. So if he did leave, he left somewhere right around what we talked about today, although the, the scriptures don't mention it. So that's one of those things where you kind of go out on a limb to assume something and you wish you had a little more scriptural background to say, yes, that's what happened, or no, that didn't. But, or could those 12 years have been four years that got extended, that got, ex you know, maybe? A little bit at a time. Three, four-year terms. As the need. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's, let's close in prayer. You're dead, so. Father, thank you for this book. Thank you for the, the things you've taught us through it. And uh, we pray that you'll be with uh, Robert now in the hour to come. We'll bless his message. And may you find our worship acceptable in your sight. We ask this in your son's name.